Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's the 123rd episode of Give the People What They Want, a podcast, a live show, everything you want from us. Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch, peoplesdispatch.org. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Really difficult news coming from Sudan. Sudan has not been able to catch a break over the last several decades. Difficult times for the people. Um, there's stories at People's Dispatch, of course, for you to read. Uh, Pavan Kulkarni had a long piece that sort of led us into the politics of this conflict. Uh, Prashant, what's been happening in Sudan? Right. I mean, uh, of course, the numbers are, uh, the conflict broke. In fact, we talked about it on Friday at that point. You know, the army and the RSF, the paramilitary force had, had mobilized. They were, they were, it, it looked like a standoff and people were hoping that there would be some kind of a negotiation. But on Saturday, uh, unfortunately, the fighting broke out. It's been quite disastrous. Over 400 uh, people killed, 3,500 people injured. As per uh, you know, and these estimates, could be conservative, and quite a lot of civilians also hurt in what is technically a clash between two security forces. But it's obviously never like that. And I think one of the you know more depressing aspects has been the fact that despite multiple attempts at ceasefires, many of them have collapsed. We know that two already did. The thir- a third has been called for. Whether it's going to succeed or not is really a question. Also, this is Eid, so a very important time for the people there. But whether you know the ceasefire will hold is a very big question because each time one was called for, there was some huge amount of infighting. Uh, we we do know, for instance, that in Khartoum, about more than 70% of the hospitals have been rendered inoperable. We do know that uh, people from Khartoum and other cities trying to flee in large numbers whenever they get a chance because. There have been massive power outages, water shortages, forcing people to really scavenge for some of these resources. We do know that violence is also breaking out in Darfur, which has been an old stronghold of the RSF. So all, all around the country, huge amount of violence. International, Both the army and the RSF have their international backers. So in the international players also involved, there was news of some Egyptian soldiers, for instance, being captured <clears throat> by the RSF. And then they were released as well. So this is definitely not just you know, a clash between two local forces as much as more of a regional uh, a regional issue as well. Some, uh, you know, one thing I think many media reports have pointed out is that uh, from the side of the residents and the citizens, there's been a lot of solidarity actions. Uh, we heard reports of the fact that the neighborhood resistance committees, which are in the forefront of, uh, <clears throat> uh, say, protesting against the military junta all these years, have also been in the thick of the relief work, working very closely with doctors' associations uh, we do know that doctors' associations have also been very strongly involved in these protests, uh, you know, trying to take care of the injured, trying to pre- prevent uh, deaths from happening, for instance. But uh, all of this together, I mean, I think two of the larger things we need to take uh, into account is that the pro-democracy protesters, the Sudanese left, the neighborhood resistance committees, uh, the protesters who have been we've been talking about for so many years now, they had been warning that this would happen. They had consistently been saying that both the military, the army, and the rapid support forces, the military junta, as we we call them, that these elements cannot be trusted in making a transition to civil rule. In fact, their slogan for many, many years has been no compromise with the military. You know, they had been calling for substantial reform of the security forces. They had been calling for justice 
for uh, those who had committed various crimes. You're talking about the RSF now. Everyone's talking about the RSF, but the RSF was the force which in June 2019 massacred people in Khartoum, massacred protesters in Khartoum, uh, rapes, mass killings, many of them had taken place. At that point, the same Burhan who's, uh, you know, who leads the country now was basically in charge. So there is a long record. And of course, over the years, the number of people killed in protests. So there is a long record of both these forces indulging in uh, basically what are war crimes, what are human rights violations. But uh, there was no attempt by uh, you know any of these uh, by any of the international players to acknowledge it. What happened instead was that the international players kept saying that no, no, the army, the, the security forces need to sort of be part of any transition to civilian rule. And finally, they have brought us here. So I think this is a very important thing to sort of uh, note as well that the civilian forces in a very unfortunate in a very tragic way have been vindicated when they kept saying that uh, you know the fact that there was no uh, you know that there was no trusting the military junta there was no trusting these security forces and i think even now the attempt is to sort of somehow get these forces on the table of course the firing must start, must stop of course there has to be some kind of peace at some point uh, it does look like both sides are trying to achieve some amount of strategic advantage before negotiations begin. But I think whenever the next round of negotiations takes place, this is a really important question before all these international players who want, uh, you know, who want peace in the region, that how can these forces be trusted anymore uh, to take care of the uh, needs of the people of Sudan? Their infighting has led to 300, 400 deaths now, but they have been, they have been leaving a trail of deaths and destructions for years for in fact over decades right now if you look if you start from darfur so this impunity has is actually the central issue in the fighting right now which i think a lot of people are kind of we take it for granted that these players are part of the establishment they need to be handled etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think this is a an important question that i think the whole world needs to ask right now it's quite right i mean think about the fact that this is a war that's been going on for a long period of time almost no attention paid to the human suffering here. Of course, another war taking place in Europe, the war in Ukraine, uh, where many forces are trying to bring peace to that war. Russian uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, Zoe, has been on a tour of Latin America. He was in Cuba. He was in other countries. What's been happening with Lavrov's tour of Latin America? And what does this have to do with the war in Ukraine? Well, it's quite an interesting tour, kind of a sanctioned country to sanctioned country tour, because besides Brazil, uh, he did visit the several uh, Latin American countries that suffer from U.S. sanctions, including uh, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela. And this was a very important visit, I think, and probably the first of its kind in some time now. Um, he held bilateral meetings uh, with heads of state, with the foreign ministers of these countries, um, in a moment where the U.S. is seeing that their position on the war in the Ukraine is actually not uh, hegemonic. It is actually not shared by the masses of the world. It's not shared by the global leaders. And especially uh, with Lula playing such an important role right now. I mean, he just went to China. He had really important meetings with uh, Chinese government officials, with Xi Jinping himself, signed 15 agreements. And he had some interesting things to say about the war, which is that the U.S., he said that the U.S. provoked this war um, and that a negotiated settlement is of the highest order. And these words were immediately rejected by U.S. officials. 
Uh, John Kirby said that he was parroting Chinese and Russian propaganda. Clearly, they're threatened by the fact that one of the leaders of the world's largest countries and one of the most important economies in Latin America is taking a more sober look at what's happening and, and actually trying to promote um, uh, steps towards peace. And so Lavrov visits uh, Latin America actually really in the aftermath of this, goes to Brazil, uh, goes to Venezuela, goes to Nicaragua, goes to Cuba. And, and to be honest, these visits are as important for Russia to reaffirm its its the relationships it has in these regions as it is for the countries uh, for whom uh, Russia has been sort of a lifeline. Um, these are countries that are blocked from uh, carrying out major financial and uh, commercial transactions with most of the world because of U.S. sanctions. Um, and it has been the trade with Russia that has really allowed them to continue. I mean, Venezuela and Russia have very, very close links, of course. Um, same with Cuba. And so these are quite interesting meetings. And at the end of his tour, which he ended in uh, Cuba, he reiterated um, rejection of the illegitimate blockade against Cuba. And oftentimes in these meetings, he was praising Latin American le leaders for actually working towards, a, as he says, a multipolar world, um, creating spaces and fortifying spaces like CELAC. So it's a, it's quite an interesting uh, moment. It's clear that Russia is is paying attention to the developments in Latin America and seeing that there are people who are interested more in the development of their economies and of their nations uh, than actually following uh, the U.S. orientations on who they should trade with, who they should have relationships with. Um, of course, as I said, this was a, a tour of kind of the sanctioned countries of Latin America. So we didn't see major meetings, for example, with the more social democratic forces. We know that, for example, Boric has been a very, very, very ardent supporter of U.S. policy regarding the war in Ukraine, having made a lot of comments condemning Russia and, uh, you know, supporting Ukraine's effort uh, to continue this war. Uh, he didn't visit, of course, Chile. He didn't visit um, Colombia, which despite um, they have actually made several uh, declarations about the war and many countries, uh, including Colombia, have refused to send ammunition. Um, but Interesting visit. We'll see how that plays out. What if there are more commercial links that are going to be made? Uh, how this will impact the economies of these countries under siege, both in Latin America um, and uh, in, in Europe because of these sanctions. But definitely, definitely an interesting visit at a very at a time of a lot of shifts in the world. It's interesting that you mentioned Boric and Chile. Yes, making strong statements. Uh, in support of the U.S. position on this war, but not sending weapons to Ukraine. Uh, an interesting uh, gap there, perhaps. Let's move to the African continent. Very interesting development in the visit made by Paul Kagame of, um, of Rwanda uh, to Benin, where he met with President Patrice Talon in Kotunu. Um, Paul Kagame, as I'm going to mention in a second, has played an interesting role on the African continent. Uh, in many ways, looked like he was sort of taking up where the French had left off. Um, but first, let me just share with you the comments that Mr. Kagame made uh, in Benin. You see, he goes to Benin to promise Rwandan troops to assist the Benin government in fighting against insurgencies in the north of the country. 15th of April, Paul Kagame of Rwanda is asked about you know, whether 
um, Africa is getting sucked into this sort of, uh, you know, new Cold War regarding China, Russia, and so on. You know, very similar to what Zoe talked about in terms of Sergei Lavrov's visit um, to Latin America. But this is what Paul Kagame said. He said, Russia or any other big power should not be our problem. These big powers have their own issues to sort out, and they keep sucking in these small countries of ours. Russia has a right to be anywhere they need to be legally, just as any other country has. I mean, those who come to Africa, you will hear people complain about China, about Russia. But what about them? What right do they have to be in Africa that others don't have? Now, when I heard these statements from Paul Kagame of Rwanda, I was a little surprised, to be honest with you. Why? You see, in recent years, there have been a series of military coups in the Sahel region of Africa, in Mali, um, in, in, in Guinea, in Burkina Faso. And these military governments, most of them run by men from the lower middle class of their societies, uh, middle level to junior level officers and so on. They have represented or reflected popular sentiment against the French military intervention. So in all these three countries, they've removed the French. In fact, Burkina Faso, Guinea, and um, and Mali have been in conversations about creating a federation. Uh, so these developments have been fascinating. Now, meanwhile, while the French are being kicked out of the Sahel region of Africa, on behalf of the French, Paul Kagame's Rwanda has intervened in the Central African Republic directly uh, with the advice of the French. And Paul Kagame's Rwanda has intervened in northern Mozambique to protect a French commercial asset, which is French Total's, um, you know, drilling off the coast of Cabo Delgado in Mozambique for natural gas. So in these two instances, Paul Kagame is effectively substituting Rwandan troops for French troops, uh, you know, to basically maintain French strategic interests in these regions. In fact, when Mr. Kagame went to Benin, I had initially thought when I watched the press conference that Mr. Kagame would say, well, we are here to take care of the insurgents and so on. Once again, carrying water in a way for the French. But things are very complicated these days. Just as Gabriel Boric of Chile on the one side says that, hey, listen, you know, we're going to, um, you know, uh, support the, the U.S. position on Ukraine, but we can't send weapons. Just as they are caught in this sort of uh, funny place, and later I'm going to talk about Japan's being caught in this funny place, so too Paul Kagame. This is not a sign of some big shift in Mr. Kagame's political thinking. He is representing the national interests of Rwanda in many ways. And also, I think, reflecting the mood on the ground in many African countries where the new attitude is, hey, listen, we may have our problems with Russia, with China, with others. But we have our problems with all of you. You know, all of you come and colonize our continent. I found this to be fascinating. Got to keep an eye on these new developments happening in the global south. Nobody else does it but People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. You're listening to give the people what they want. Come to you every Friday on our live show, but of also, of course, the podcast, which you can listen to at all the podcasty places. Make sure to watch that. We also look forward to our selfies of you watching our show. The reason is we're trying to build a community here 
this is not just us talking into the ether. You who listen to us regularly are part of our family. So send us um, visuals so that we can know who you are. Send us visuals so we can know who you are. In Cuba recently, uh, the population decided they know who their leadership is, Zoe. Uh, there was an election and so on. Take us to Cuba, please. Well, as we had spoken about before, on March 26th, it was the legislative elections uh, where 470 members of the National Assembly were elected, uh, which in itself is a process that actually expands to months that involves a lot of uh, grassroots consultations, um, building these candidacies on the ground, a very, very extensive selection process. And uh, this Wednesday, uh, April 19th, Miguel Díaz-Canel was elected by this body, the National Assembly, as president, uh, who will serve another term. Uh, Similarly, was elected the vice president, uh, the leadership of the National Assembly. And this is essentially uh, giving giving beginning to another uh, cycle of this leadership uh, with this new National Assembly. And it's, it's a quite interesting moment in Cuba, as we've been covering for the past several months. It's a moment of a lot of challenges, a lot of... Um, economic challenges that are quite difficult. Um, Currently, Cuba is suffering from a major fuel uh, crisis, a major fuel shortage, which, of course, not only impacts the ability of cars to get gasoline, uh, but also possibilities for transportation of goods, etc. And so once again, Miguel Diaz-Canel is facing such a challenging uh, task. Um, he was sworn in the first time in 2018, elected then by the National Assembly. And once again, now in 2023, he's facing um, a continued uh, tightened sanctions regime in 2018 when he had been sworn in. Of course, it was a year after Donald Trump took office and we saw the intensification of the sanctions regime against Cuba under the auspices of the of uh, the Havana syndrome, of these alleged sonic attacks that were happening at the U.S. Embassy, and then, of course, the inclusion of Cuba on the state sponsor of terrorism list regarding its role in actually facilitating the peace process in Colombia. And both of these measures, which made the already uh, suffocating blockade uh, even worse, have not been let up by President Joe Biden, um, despite the fact that he was the vice president of Obama, despite the fact that Both the Havana syndrome has been uh, debunked, as well as uh, the Interpol order that Ivan Duque had had put out for the delegation of the ELN at the time. Both of the justifications for the U.S. government intensifying the sanctions regime have both disappeared, uh, yet the U.S. government continues this high-pressure campaign. So Miguel Diaz-Canel is facing a situation where the country is still recovering from the COVID-19 pandemics and the impacts that had on the Cuban economy a severe dip in their GDP. Uh, They're recovering from successive natural disasters with separate hurricanes, uh, the Matanzas fire. This is a situation of great strife. But at the same time, we've seen that under Miguel Diaz-Canel, and it's likely to continue, uh, that aspirations for the revolution, such as uh, creating this code of families, which which really envisions a society where um, not only can people marry who they please, whether it be uh, any sort of configuration of people, um, not even related by blood, etc., family in this new conception, but also protecting the rights of the elderly, the children, disabled people. And so at the same time that Cuba is confronting this 
this siege really on this, then this siege, this economic siege, financial siege, they're also uh, showing a new path towards a new society. And so this involves, as I said, this new families code, re-envisioning what it means to be a family in the 21st century, um, and also, um, you know, taking the revolution further, intensifying um, popular participation. Um, the, the new legislative assembly represents, has more women, has more black people, has more young people. This is really um, shifting uh, how Cuba is seeing itself, how it's being able to speak to the people and how it's going to address the problems of the people in this difficult time. That's a very important thing. And of course, Cuba, a leader in, in providing health care to the public. In fact, a leader in providing health care in many other parts of the world with the doctors traveling here, there and everywhere. Uh, Prashant, People's Dispatch has a terrific partnership with the People's Health Movement. I regularly read your People's Health Dispatches recently. There's been stories on Zimbabwe or Nigeria. I mean, who covers health care like People's a health dispatch, really a unique project. Tell us what what uh, the reporters have been finding out. Right. Uh, quite an interesting uh, set of developments in recent times. And a lot has to do, I mean, if we, a couple of stories, three stories, in fact, which are on the People's Dispatch site as well, bringing together three very different perspectives on a common issue, which is really the issue of <clears throat> the lack of enough healthcare workers in the world and across the world, of course, but specifically in the African continent. And this is, of course, not an issue restricted to Africa, because one of the reasons we actually do see this shortage of health workers is that there is a recruitment by countries in the global north who, while underpaying their own health workers in their in their own countries, try to recruit health uh, these professionals from other parts of the globe so that sometimes they can be paid lesser salaries or sometimes they can kind of meet the demand as contract workers in their own countries. So. This is a problem in which the, which the global north and the global south are very truly interlinked. And there's been a lot of discussion on this in recent times. For instance, I believe in Nigeria, there is a proposal right now which would restrict physicians from going directly after graduating from university. Similarly, at the same time, Zimbabwe is also contemplating the recent announcement has been made by a minister in Zimbabwe, the health minister, saying that the government is planning to criminalize, in fact, foreign recruitment of doctors from Zimbabwe. And this comes at a time when countries like Nigeria and Zimbabwe are facing a huge crisis. In March, I believe there was a report, an annual report released by the WHO called the Health Workforce Support and Safeguards List. And these basically list countries, in this case 55, which have a very difficult situation in terms of the health workforce. And as you can guess, of the 55 countries, 40 are in Africa, and it includes both Nigeria and Zimbabwe. Now, of course, this is part of a global code of the WHO. There are, uh, you know, countries from the global north are supposed to take a hint from this, this uh, from this report and not try to reduce recruitments, but that has not really been happening. So, we, like I said, we have a two-pronged problem here. On the one hand, because of the policies imposed by the IMF, the World Bank, various structural institutions, governments are not able to spend enough on healthcare, which means there are not enough recruitments. There is not enough infrastructure. This automatically leads to healthcare workers realizing that they have very limited future in their own country. For instance, I believe in Zimbabwe, uh, the, uh, the average wage of a worker is around $400 or something. And even with 100% pay hikes, they have not been able to manage because inflation has been at 229%. So there is a larger, you know, 
a set of policy frameworks which prevent enough spending on the healthcare sector. This leads to healthcare workers leaving and going to the global north. Meanwhile, health workers in the global north trying, you know, also protesting for their own rights and also not getting them. So health workers across the globe kind of suffering due to this kind of a problem. And the reports actually detail the extent of the crisis, the extent of migration that is taking place. I think right now Nigeria has the third highest number of doctors uh, practicing in the United Kingdom. That's about 11,000 doctors. Whereas if you look at Zimbabwe as well, there's a huge number of, uh, what do you call, doctors who are migrating. And interestingly, also important to note that this is not just a problem with Africa, because even Eastern European countries, uh, you know, who were who are in the periphery of the European Union, even they're facing this problem, because professionals uh, from for former Soviet Union countries, for instance, where the education system is very good, uh, but whose economies are currently in distress, migrating in large numbers to uh, the core countries in the European Union. So, this actually presenting a very difficult challenge before countries both in the global south and the, and the north, but. This is also, like I said, a larger uh, macroeconomic problem. As long as countries are being forced to reduce their spending, to increase, you know, uh, cut taxes on the rich, to not spend on, uh, to not increase salaries, for instance, as part of these structural adjustment policies, there's no real way in which the healthcare, in which the education can be taken care of. And this only creates a situation where there is massive, what is called brain drain. So very important crisis. It's interesting that so many countries are facing it at the same time and something to watch out for. I think, you know, the bit of your story that I hope people focused on is Zimbabwe has an inflation rate of 229%, the highest inflation rate in the world. Uh, it's well worth pointing out because many countries are struggling with 8%, 10%, 15%, Turkey, 57%. But here's Zimbabwe, not only 229% inflation rate, Prashant, as a consequence of current developments, but historically because of the economic war that that country has been under for decades. And why have they been under an economic war? Well, because they decided to um, expropriate the colonial era farmers and transfer the farms to black farmers. I mean, that was their crime. Uh, An extraordinary story. And I very much hope people will go and read all the stories from People's Health Dispatch um, a project of People's Dispatch, an important initiative. Well, we've been talking a lot about Africa. We've been talking a lot about the new Cold War, China, Russia, and all of that. News comes that Japanese, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is scheduled to make an Africa tour um, before the summer group of seven meeting to be held in, of all places, Hiroshima. Um, my God, you know, think about this. The place where the United States dropped the atom bomb is going to be where the G7 is going to meet and release belligerent statements about world affairs. I think it's beyond irony, really. Well, Mr. Kishida is going to Africa partly because, and this is the interesting piece of it. I just did a story for Globetrotter, which is on the People's Dispatch website. When I went and read the 300-page Diplomatic Blue Book 2023, done by the Japanese government. Now, in this document, very important document, because you get to see what the Japanese government is thinking in terms of their role in the world and so on. Well, in the document, they firstly say that we are at a major turning point in world affairs. Hard to disagree with them. Look at 
the confusion we're getting from Paul Kagame's statements in Benin. This is certainly a turning point. They're quite right about that. Um, secondly, they've come out quite harshly in this document around their, um, you know, their own understanding of China's role in the region. Very tough statements. But in the same section, they say we're continuing to collaborate with China. We've got all these diplomatic initiatives and so on. Um, they are again caught in the horns of a dilemma. As I've reported over the course of the past year, Japan has made very strong statements against Russia, but continues to invest in the Sakhalin 2 natural gas projects in Sakhalin Island, just north of Hokkaido in Japan. So here you have Japan again caught in a horns of, in the, on the horns of a dilemma between on the one side going along with the group of seven countries regarding uh, Russia, but on the other hand, you know, they are caught between the needs, the national needs for energy from Russia and investment and, 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 and technology from China. But the most interesting part about the diplomatic blue book for me was that they acknowledged that the countries of the global south are not falling in line with the group of seven, that they're going their own way. And the blue book for the first time, and by the way, I found this interesting because just a few months ago, a Japanese foreign ministry official was asked at a press conference, can you, dis- can you dis- uh, define what is Global South? And the official said, well, we don't have an official definition. Seems to me that changes in the South have made them, forced them to acknowledge the existence of the Global South, now no longer just as emerging or developing countries, but as the Global South. And they are paying attention. And in the Blue Book, they said, we have to engage more with these countries. Hence, Fumio Kishida is going to make his visit on behalf of the G7. Yet caught between the horns of a dilemma, not able to fully break with Russia. What can they tell other countries now, given that they continue to import large amounts of natural gas from Russia? You're listening to give the people what they want. We hope this is what you want. Brought to you by People's Dispatch, your most important news source of the day. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We'll see you next week. Coming back to us, I hope.